Robert Frost wrote a poem called The Road Not Taken. And the beginning of the poem says, two, ro two roads diverge in a yellow wood. This is probably or one of the most famous pieces of American poetry ever written. This bit of poetry, The Road Not Taken, is included in all the high school, all the college, all, the, um, po all those poetry textbooks. It's noteworthy, um, and it's disputed. Not everybody agrees on what it's about. I can tell you that it ends like this, and it ends with a flourish. It says, I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that made all the difference. Today, Jude is going to take us to a spot where two roads diverge. The one we choose, and we all must choose, will make all the difference. In Jude 14 through 23, we're going to see these two roads laid out before this. Before us, one road is marked, by is marked by those that would follow false teachers, and the other road is marked by those that would not. Verses 14 through 19, we're going to see this is the road to nowhere. In verses 23, 20 through 23, we're going to see that it's the road home. We might say that if those are the choices, nowhere and home, that's an easy choice. But remember, Jude is warning us not to allow false teachers to gain a foothold in our lives or even to gain a hearing in our consciousness. The, rem the reason he warns us is because false teachers come in and though they are a scourge on churches and have been a scourge for centuries, false teachers come in and they're winsome and deceptive and they know how to push the right buttons and it's easy to be led astray. The road home is harder than you think, but more worthwhile than your wildest dreams. And so today, if I were to summarize Jude 14 through 23 in one sentence, it would be this. Turn away from or trample false teaching by keeping yourself in the love of God. We're going to see that, and we're going to see that that will make all the difference in verses 14 through 23. So I'm going to read that whole section. If you have a Bible, follow along as I read God's word to us. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness. And, their, and they have committed in such an ingodly, ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Let's pray. 
Lord, anytime we open the word, we're aware of our great need to even understand what is being communicated. We need your spirit to be with us and to illuminate your word. Even more as I open your word here today and attempt to preach from it. Lord, what I need is not just a better vocabulary, not just a higher intellect. What I need is your spirit working through my weakness. Lord, I feel weak feel vulnerable. I know I need help, and you know I need more help than I even know. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use my efforts, as weak as they are, to serve these wonderful people. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would visit us today with power, so that we might just, we might not just hear about your might, but that we might also experience your might and your strength today. It's in your name, Jesus, that we have confidence that you will do your work through your word. It's in your name that we give thanks and that we pray. Amen. We're going to look to turn away from the influence of false teaching by keeping ourselves in the love of God. We see this in two movements. First, in the road to nowhere. We see this in Jude 14 through 19. As you've, if you've been here, you know that from verses 5 through 13, Jude has undertaken a sustained frontal assault against false teachers and all of their poisonous words. In verse 14 through 19, he continues that same theme. Now he's going to cite a prophecy from Enoch, which is interesting which, interestingly enough, is not found anywhere else in the Bible, but the gist of the prophecy is found all over the Bible. The gist is this. God will judge the ungodly. Verse 14 says that it is about these, when he says these, those are the, un, the false teachers, those who would lead people astray, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, you can read in Genesis, when we have the genealogy, Enoch is the seventh name from Adam, prophesied saying behold the lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones he comes with his angels now notice what he's going to do what is he going to do when he comes with his angels verse 15 says that he's going to execute judgment on all and to convict all now then we see the first of four references to ungodliness notice he will execute judgment on all and to convict all of all the ungodly, of all their deeds, that was one, of deeds of ungodliness, that's two, that they have committed in such an ungodly way, that's three, and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying all the false teachers, all those people who would seek to divide, all those people who would seek to lead other people astray, the Lord will come with his angels and judge this kind of rank ungodliness. Now, the ungodliness that he has in mind is significant, but it's not maybe what you might be thinking. It's not assault or murder or mugging or theft or rape. It's some, those are horrible and that's atrocious, but the Lord has something else in mind that he's judging in these false teachers. He calls them, verse 16, grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the fruit of false teachers. If you wonder if someone's a fruit, a false teacher, look at the fruit of their lives. Do they grumble? Are they constantly complaining about anything and everything to anyone who would listen? Maybe in the beginning they, their complaint takes the form of a prayer request until they can sort of 
you know, decide who's going to be a willing and open ear to them and then grumble, 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 complain, complain, complain. That's what false teachers do. And grumbling and complaining is an ungodly affront to God. They're malcontents, means they're fault finders. They don't build people up, they pick people apart. They're always aware of people's weaknesses, more aware of their weaknesses than they are of where God is working in them. Malcontents point out to amplify, broadcast the normal weaknesses of believers and make them seem bigger than they really are. Leaders are often their targets. So false teachers, what do they do? They grumble, they complain, they're fault finders. They follow their own sinful desires. This is, this is where oftentimes they don't think primarily in what does the Bible say about a certain subject or a given subject. That's often too simplistic or naive. They might say, you don't understand. It's just complicated and complex. There's all kinds of things going on. And they use those kinds of words as cover to follow their own sinful desires. False teachers are also loudmouth boasters. They're bombastic in their behavior and their opinions so that they might draw attention to themselves and gain a following. Their confidence is not in God's word, but in their experience, their perception, their opinion, and their research. And they show favoritism. That's like flattery to try to get people to do something for them. They try to use people. Maybe they make people feel important or needed for a while, but later they just discard them when they're done like they would throw a dirty sock away. Now the church at large, and local churches in particular, have needed to fight and be aware against this kind of teaching since Pentecost. See, Jude helps us understand that false teachers have these kinds of characteristics because they don't come in and tell us, hey, listen, I'm a false teacher. If you follow me, you'll see that it's going to ruin your life. I'm a malcontent. I'm a grumbler. I complain at the drop of a hat. I have loud mouth boasting all the time. No, what Jude wants us to recognize is that if we're going to make it until the end, if we're going to be a people who make it home, we need to make sure that we understand what false teachers look like. Their ungodliness is amplified and the paramount pinnacle thing, the decisive element of their ungodliness we see in verse 18. This is verse 17 first says, But you must remember, beloved, that the predictions of our Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their un own ungodly passions. And here's the pinnacle of their evil work. It is these who cause division, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. The Lord abhors division, and he abhors division more than we're apt to think. Now, when you think division, don't think denominations, but think division within a local church. The pinnacle of these false teachers, the pinnacle of their evil, is the fact that they foster division among the people of God. One way you can identify a false teacher, one of the, maybe the fastest way, is if that teacher divides friends and family or people from a faithful church. Now, we know that the message of Jesus Christ is going to divide people enough. Now, false teachers, what they will do is they, as scoffers, look to validate their position by recruiting other people to act in ways that they think are valuable. And oftentimes, these false teachers encourage suspicion of leaders and try to recruit other people to have the same kind of suspicion or to leave a church they've, they've left so that they might have their exit validated. Now, I'm not saying there's never a reason to leave a church. There is. 
But there's never, ever a reason to leave a faithful church poorly and causing division. That's evil. And division is much more evil, much fouler than we typically think. And this is one of the primary markers of a false teacher. But this, friends, is a road that leads to nowhere. This is where we must recognize that this is what false teaching looks like. And it's very easy to be taken in by that kind of teaching. It's very easy to be taken in by those kinds of people. And it's not enough just to be able to recognize what false teaching is or who they are. We must also be a people who work to build ourselves up, to work to recognize. It's not enough, like, when you're building a building on... you, sometimes you have to tear down what's there to be able to build what's, what, what's next. So we must be able to tear down false teaching or things in our lives that we know that we need to, to clear out. But also, we need to make sure that we are able to build with the right sort of material, build, with the, right, build the right sort of way, and move from the road to nowhere to the road home. And that's what we see in verses 20 through 23. He's going to give us, Jude is going to tell us, the formula, the super secret formula, here in verse 21. It's super and secret, but it's clearly communicated here in verse 21 on how we can make it home, how we can make it all the way. We see this in verse 21. We, we read this. Verse 21 says, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Verses 20 and 21. This is the only command of that in that section. And we read, I'll read it again. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. What a fascinating phrase. He's not saying, keep yourselves loving God. He's not saying, keep God loving you. He's not saying, keep being lovable to God. Or keep yourselves in love with God. But what's he saying? Keep yourselves in the love of God. And we don't often talk that way, but what does that mean? What Jude is talking about is awareness and experience. What he's saying here is this. Make sure that you are continually aware of God's love for you. Make sure that you experience God's love for you. It's a call to continually experience God's love. Now, if we're not experiencing God's love, and I don't, exp- I don't assume any of us are experiencing it the way we ought to experience it, if we're not experiencing God's love, it's not as if God doesn't love us. It's not as if His love has faded or His love has gone and, and waned. But no, what, what's going on is we're recognizing that maybe we aren't experiencing God the way that He really is. See, most of us don't understand how much God loves us, and that misunderstanding, that deficit, is, is dangerous. It's very easy to live in the center of some other kind of desire. We can forget something as grand and majestic as the love of God over time. It doesn't happen all at once. It's slowly, not all at once. You would say, yeah, I know God loves me. But there, if you're honest, there's a time in which you slide from not really caring that much, maybe not being aware that much of God's love, to not caring that much about God's love, to not feeling God's love at all. And so how can we be more aware of God's love? Because if we're not aware of God's love, we will wander away. If we're not aware enough of God's love for us, we will end up on the wrong road. So how can we be aware of His love? How can we keep ourselves in the love of God? Verse 20 and 21 tells us 
And there's three words that we're going to mark here. Building, praying, and waiting. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Building, waiting, and praying. Verse 20, but you, that's plural, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? By building ourselves up in the most holy faith, by praying in the Spirit, and by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. First, building yourselves up in the most holy faith. Now, what does that mean? That means growing strong in the content and substance of our most holy faith. What is our most holy faith? It's all that God has done in and through His Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not merely that we believe in a Creator God. We believe in a personal God who is aware of you and aware of me. This is a God that loved the world so much he sent and offered his son as a payment for our sins. This God who is abounding in steadfast love, even for the worst of sinners, has sent his son so that his son might die in the place of repentant and and contrite sinners. He can make the foulest clean, even those of us soaked by sin. He can make us pure and clean and building up in building ourselves up in the most holy faith reminds us that we have a faith that is not blind, nor is it arbitrary. We have a faith that is not based on feelings, but it's based on fact. You might be used to thinking about the word faith as something you can kind of drum up yourself to make yourself feel better, but the most holy faith of Christianity has nothing to do with that. The most holy faith of Christianity says this, look at the facts of who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's about to do, and build yourself up in that truth. So let's just, let's just think together about some of the facts of the most holy faith that our lives are built upon as Christians. These are things that without these things we would have no hope in life and neither in death as well. So what are some of the things that we have to build ourselves up in this most holy faith? First, Jesus is alive. We don't serve a dead Savior. He, is, he was dead, but now he's alive forevermore. And he, in dying, he was crushed. He died for our iniquity. He didn't just die a pointless death. He died a purposeful death, a death where he decided to take upon himself our iniquity on that cross. And so in rising, he rose so that we might not have to experience that kind of eternal death. Our most holy faith starts with a living Savior. Build yourselves up in this most holy faith. Jesus is alive. Satan and all evil will one day be defeated. Satan and all evil will be destroyed one day. Our most holy faith does not ask us to make a deal with evil. Our faith tells us that one day all evil will be destroyed and we will stand and watch. We will watch the evil one who seems to get his way so often. We will find one day that his days are up and we're going to see our Savior take Satan and all the evil that he's ever done and toss him into the lake of fire forever and always to be destroyed. Satan will be defeated. Jesus is alive. Satan will be defeated. Build yourself up in that most holy faith. Not only that, but you personally, individually, are forgiven your every sin. Your every sin. You and I are great sinners, and yet our sin, 
though it should be a barrier between us and God, is not. Why? Because God's grace runs deeper than any of our sin. The Lord, though He has cataloged our every sin, He has counted them out and He's put them on the head of Christ. Why? So that we might be able to experience forgiveness. He might be able to turn away. He passes over us and visits our punishment upon Jesus. We are forgiven our every sin. And we must build ourselves up with this most holy faith in this reality. Jesus is alive. Satan will die. We're forgiven our every sin. Trials are not punishment. Trials are not leftover wrath. The trouble that we have in this world, Christians, are because we live in a fallen world. The Lord has no wrath for us. Yes, sometimes He will discipline His children, but that's not punishment. That's not wrath. That's discipline so that we might be formed into who He wants us to be. Trials He uses as a chisel to make us more godly. Trials are not punishment. May we build ourselves up in this most holy faith. Jesus is alive. Satan and evil will one day be killed you are forgiven your every sin. Trial is not punishment, and death is not the end. Death has forever and always been, now for Christians, been robbed of its sting. You will die, but that's merely a transition from this life to being with Jesus. Instead of eternal torment on the other side of the door of death, Jesus is standing there ready and willing and excited to see you. This is just the tip of our most holy faith. So how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? We build ourselves up in that faith. Now notice the language is plural. The exact language is not build yourself up in the most holy faith. It's build yourselves up. Look at verse 21, or 20, sorry. Building yourselves up in the most holy faith. You cannot adequately build yourself up by yourself. It takes other people. It takes community. It takes a local church. You need other people around you to help you build yourself up in this most holy faith. Some of us need more mature saints who we can just sit across the table and say, tell me how the Lord has been faithful to you over decades. Some of us need to have the blessing of sharing the gospel with a new believer and just see them ignite with excitement. Those are ways in which we build each other up in this most holy faith. Some of us need friends who can support us just by pointing to Jesus and saying, things are going to be okay. Some of us need faithful friends who will challenge us when we wander or encourage us when we're downcast or pick us up when we fall. See, none of us can do it alone. None of us can make it on our own. All of us, every single one of us, needs help. That's why we gather here together today. That's why we sing songs that say, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. We sing those songs because we're not the only one. It's, it's just a blessing to be able to sit there and listen to all the voices of all the people who gather here and sing together that Jesus paid it all. That it, so often when I'm out there in the world, I think, man, there aren't that many Christians. There aren't that many people who believe like me. It seems so lonely and so troubling. And yet, when I come in here and I hear the people of God, when I hear you sing about your Savior and what He's done for you, it builds my faith. It builds my hope. It builds me up in this most holy faith. 
and makes me want to keep coming back and go, you know what, even though it might seem dark and bleak and difficult out there, I'm not alone. Not only do I know that the Lord will never leave me, nor will he forsake me, there are people that I can associate with who build me up in this most holy faith. How do we keep in the love of God, building yourself up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit as well? That's the second thing. We see that also in verse 20. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Now what kind of praying is praying in the Holy Spirit? Do you need soft music in the background or candles lit? No. Praying in the Holy Spirit is merely praying and being guided by the Holy Spirit. All who are genuinely saved and know Jesus are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, praying in the Holy Spirit means praying guided by the Spirit. Now, do you know how the Spirit guides you most often in prayer? It's through God's Word. It's through reading God's Word and turning His Word into prayer. So if you've ever wondered, okay, I don't know how to pray in the Spirit. I'm not sure what I need to do. Do I need to speak in tongues? No, you don't need to be speaking in tongues. You need to be able to have a Bible, and you need to be able to read it, and you need to be able to turn it into prayer. And when you pray the prayers that you see in the Bible or you pray the things you see in the Bible, what you're doing is you're turning, you're turning, you're praying in the Holy Spirit. So here's an example. This week I read Psalm 34, 15 and through 17. And I read this, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Now imagine you're going through a situation at work or at school where something's happening, and somebody's unfairly singling you out for something that you didn't do, or they're exaggerating, exaggerating something that you did do. And so you're being blamed for something that is not your fault. And it's bothering you. And you carry it around. And it's, it's there in your backpack all the time thinking, I don't know what to do. So how do you pray in the Holy Spirit about a situation like that? Are you supposed to just go, well, you know, this is my lot in life. There's nothing I can do. No. What we do is we call out and pour our heart out to the Lord. And we, were, we see here in Psalm 34, 15, that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. And so praying in the Spirit would be something like this. Lord, I don't feel like you see me. I feel like all kinds of things are happening to me and you just seem to be sitting by, not really caring. Either you're blind or you're deaf because I can't find what's happening. I don't know what you're about. I can't see what's going on. It seems like those who are doing evil and doing evil to me, those people seem to be the ones who are winning. And it doesn't, hear that you, it doesn't seem like you're responding. And I read this, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Lord, I need help believing that. Help me believe that you hear what I'm saying. Help me believe that you see my plight. Help me believe that you will respond and deliver me out of my trouble. See, that's praying in the Spirit, depending on what you're going through. If, you need, if you're discouraged, if you're encouraged, if you're, if you're faltering, if you, wherever you are, as you read the Bible, you turn that into prayer. That's, that's what praying in the Spirit is. And remember, praying is just talking to God. Praying is just talking to the Lord. You don't need to use special words. You don't need to speak in these and thous and, and marshal the old English. You don't need to pull out your King James Version so that it sounds holier. All you need to do 
is pray the Word of God back to God. And, this is, and it makes sense. So how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Well, we talk to Him. Part of staying in love is talking to Him. It's the same thing with my wife and I. My wife and I have been married for 25 years, and it's been, she's been the most amazing gift I've ever received on earth. If I went home this afternoon and said, listen, sweetie, it's been a great ride. I'm going to keep sleeping here, eating here. You're going to keep doing laundry and stuff for me. I might mow the lawn. Oh, actually, we put in fake grass, so I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, but I'm going to stop talking to you. You know, I think I've talked to you enough. So, you know, the words that we've shared, those have been great. Uh, I just don't have any more. So I'll be here, you'll be here, I'm not going to talk to you. Now, how do you think our relationship's going to go? Poorly, I would say. But so often, that's the way I think about my relationship with the Lord. I don't talk to Him. I'm not interacting with Him. See, to have a relationship with the Lord, to keep in the love of God, you need to talk to your God. To pour out your heart to him. Otherwise, you're not going to have much of a relationship with him. So how do we keep ourselves experiencing the love of God? How do we keep in the love of God? By building ourselves up together in the most holy faith. By praying in the Spirit also. By waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice we have all three members of the Trinity in play. Here's Steve Tong. My friend pointed that out on Thursday. We see that here in verses 20 and 21. Mercy. So what is he saying when he says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ? Mercy means that we will not receive what we deserve. See, even in our lives, as we seek to keep ourselves in the love of God, we will never be perfect. We will never be faultless. We will be, at times, flailing and failing. But Jesus himself gives us mercy. He doesn't pay us what we deserve. What we deserve, he gives us mercy. And so we wait. We're called to wait and hope with anticipation. Now, this waiting is not passive like you were at the DMV, where you get your ticket and you sit down and just try to kill time. That's not what we're called to do. No, we're what we we're called to do is wait with anticipation like a dinner host. A dinner host is someone, so someone who's having one or ten or a hundred people over for dinner, they're going to wait very differently than someone else who's at a DMV, right? A dinner host cleans the house, buys the food, prepares the food, sets a table, puts away any rabid animals or dangerous animals, uh, gets drinks out, um, has everything ready so that when the guests arrive, they will feel welcome and warm and and ready to eat. A dinner host is active. And so that's what we're called to do. We're active. We're called to actively wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning that we're called to recognize and remember that this is not our home. That one day we will be with him and he will remake the heavens and the earth and we will finally be home. To keep ourselves in the love of God is to make sure that we look forward and put our hopes not in our spouse or our future spouse or our 401k or who wins the next election 
or inflation going down or any of those things. Our hope is found not in retirement. Our hope is not found in our health. Our hope is not found in our reputation improving, but our hope is found as we wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ who will give us not what we deserve, but give us mercy. So one of the ways that we keep ourselves in the love of God is by waiting for the mercy of Jesus Christ that is to be revealed. So how do we keep ourselves in this love? By building, by praying, by waiting. Building ourselves up together in the most holy faith, praying together in the Holy Spirit, waiting together for the mercy that is to be revealed in Jesus Christ. When I hear stories about like the one tray related that was going on in Ethiopia, I hear stories like that. First of all, I realize how different it is to be a Christian in other places. How costly. It doesn't cost here in the same way. But also, when I hear the story about how Michael, though he's a U.S. citizen, will stay, is staying, because he has a church to serve and to protect, that fires me up and gives me hope. It helps me to, it's that kind of testimony that I hear and I say, yes, that's the right thing to do. Those kinds of things, we need those kinds of reminders to remember so that we can recall that what we're about is about, we're about something that's lasting and something that matters. We're not just going through the motions so that we can feel better about ourselves and kind of make it through the week. What we're doing is we are a people who are, have been captured by the love of God. And we must work to make sure that we build ourselves up in that most holy faith, pray in the Spirit, and wait for His coming. Because if we do not, we will wander away and go down the wrong road. See, none of us have the wherewithal to trample this kind of influence, the influence of false teachers alone. We need each other more than ever. There's a proliferation on the Internet where you can find whatever you want, whenever you want, delivered however you want. And that's dangerous. That's one of the many reasons that we need each other. Another reason, another reason, is because none of us really have experienced or know the love of God like we ought to. This love that He has for us is infinite. This love He has for us is beyond explanation. This love He has for us defies all explanation. This love that God has for us is immeasurable. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul prays that the people would understand this love. He prays, verse 18, that they may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So how? How can we know this love that surpasses knowledge? How? 
I don't know. But I know that we need strength to be able to understand this. I know that we need strength, and I know that we need to walk this way. And what's the way we're called to walk? We're called to walk building ourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, and waiting for the mercy that will be revealed in Jesus Christ. If, as we walk together, building, praying, waiting, this is the way that we build ourselves up in the awareness of God's love. We will not be aware enough of God's love if we try to go it alone. We will go down the wrong road and end up going down the road to nowhere instead of the road home. We must be a people who are taken with the idea that there is a God in heaven who is transcendent, like Jonathan said, who is high above us, who is beyond all reckoning, who created everything that we see with just the word of his mouth, he created all things, and yet this God, who is high and mighty and transcendent and other, this God has a love that we can't categorize. This God has a love for you and for me. And this kind of love is the kind of love that will keep us close. It's not as if he says, listen, stay close or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strike you with a thunderbolt. What he says is this, I love you. And how do we know? Well, we look to Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. We look to him. Do you wonder if God loves you? If you look inside and say, do I have reason enough for God to love me? The answer is no. But we don't look inside. We look to Jesus. And we say, well, here's how I know God loves me. Look at the cross. Look at his son, perfect, flawless, never sinning in word, never sinning in deed, never sinning even in thought or his motive, and yet killed. Why? Because I sin in word and deed and thought and motive on a regular basis, and I deserve punishment, and so do you. But I receive instead mercy. Why? Because God loves us. You don't understand that enough. I guarantee. How do I know that? Because I know I don't understand it enough. This kind of love is ours in God. This kind of love, we must keep ourselves in awareness of this kind of love. Otherwise, we will wander away. So together, keeping ourselves aware of this love, we build ourselves up in the faith on Sundays, in small group, one-on-one, -on -one, through texts, phone calls, emails, conversations. We build ourselves up. We pray in the Spirit individually, together, on Sundays, small group, prayer meetings. We build ourselves up, we pray in the Spirit, and we wait together longing, knowing that Jesus will come back and bring us mercy, and there is nothing in this world that will satisfy like Him. And we do this together so that we might be a people who might not be aware of all the, all the ups and downs of, of the economy the way that we once were, or might not be aware of all the poll data that we once were, but we're aware of God's love for us, and we stay in that kind of awareness and keep ourselves in His love. And as we do that, we do that together. We stay on this road, and we make it home. Let's pray. 
Lord, I pray that we would all make it home. Lord, I pray for people here who are tempted to wander away, Lord, and at one time or another, we all do. At one time or another, we all can just think it's easier to go another way or track another direction. Lord, I pray that you would just arrest us all with an awareness of your love. Lord, I pray for an experience of your love. I pray that as we, as we build each other up in the most holy faith, as we pray to you in the Holy Spirit, as we wait for the coming of Jesus Christ and the mercy that will be delivered to us at that time, as we act in this way as Christians, Lord, I pray that you would keep us away from the wiles of the evil one and false teachers. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be united, continue to be united, not around just the fact that we're in this city at this time, but around the fact that we have a God who loves us and will never leave us. We have a God who loves us and who wants us to know that love and experience that love and stay in that love and be aware of that love and let that love overwhelm and define all of our lives, Lord. I pray that that would be the case, Lord. I pray that that would be the case for all of us, those of us who've been Christians for decades and those of us that have been Christians for weeks. Lord, I pray that you would add people to our midst who do not know you because they hear about this love, they, they see this love that you have displayed in our lives, and I just ask that you would make that to be one of the testimonies of our church. Those people love God, and they, they love talking about God's love for them. Lord, keep us on your road, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.